0: Welcome to the SHIFT podcast. This podcast was recorded on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee people. The creators of this podcast recognize that we are all treaty people and we accept our collective responsibility to each other and to reconciliation as we work towards an equitable, inclusive, and accessible campus for all. the shift podcast facilitated by the student experience office you will hear from students of diverse backgrounds about their lived experiences at queens how these experiences are shaped by identity their visions for a safer and more inclusive campus climate and what needs to happen for there to be a meaningful and lasting
1: culture shift So it's important for me that if you're trying to be an ally and trying to be, you know, helping to improve inclusion on whether it be a campus, whether it be in your family, whether it be in a corporate workspace or wherever else, it's important that you tap into the spheres of influence you have and never
2: underestimate any of them. There were so many people sitting here with vast lived experiences and vast kind of like cultural depth to them that we could create really impactful, meaningful relationships and experiences.
1: There's a much bigger emphasis and awareness of celebrating people's differences, and it just makes me really excited to see how far or how much further we're going to go in, you know, the next 5, 10, 20 years.
0: Listeners will also
1: learn about resources that exist for equity-deserving students at
0: Queen's and hear tips for where to find community and support. This podcast is part of the Queen's Shift Project, a collection of initiatives aimed at creating a safer and more inclusive campus culture for all students. I'm your host, Malaika Khan. Hi everyone, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'm gonna start off with introductions.
2: Awesome, thanks so much. Um, Yeah, I'm Mariah, I use she, her pronouns and I'm in my third year of the Health Sciences Program. Hi everyone, my
1: name is Mina. Um, My pronouns are she, her, and I'm in my fourth year of the Commerce Program. You both seem to be uh, near the end of your Queen's journey. Why did you choose Queen's? (laughs) It's a good question. Um, I don't know about Mariah, but for me personally, when it came time to choosing universities, the biggest factor for me was um, financial support. So I was looking at whichever university offered the most. And at the time, Queens was um, offering the most amount of financial opportunities uh, in terms of aid. So that's where I ended up coming. It wasn't the only reason I chose the school. Um, I think deep down inside, I've always known myself to be someone that uh, looks to enter spaces that she doesn't know about. And throughout high school I've been gearing to go up into a degree similar to yours, Mariah, like health sciences or something very uh, you know, like engineering or science focused in general. And um at the end of university or at the end of high school, I remember I told myself, Mina, like you have proximity to these fields already. You know people in them or you have friends who are gonna go into them, but you don't know a lot of people that come from, you know, the communities that you do in corporate spaces. So why not try it out? So I think it was a bit of an experiment to go into a business program in particular. And many people would tell me, Mina, like you're going into business. Mina, you're going into Queen's Commerce. And I didn't fully understand what they meant by these statements until I got here. But well, I'll expand on that afterwards as well.
2: I would say I have both opposite and similar views to why I picked Queens, my biggest factor in deciding to come here was um, the supportive community that I would want. Uh, Financial support was definitely a factor. However, what really drew me here was that it was what I considered that Goldilocks zone of not being so small that I felt Like I was still within that microcosm that you might experience in high school, but not so big that I felt kind of lost in a crowd or a bit de-individualized at maybe a larger university. I found that Queen's was that good medium ground and provided ample opportunity to seek out new experiences, but also to find those support groups for myself as I transitioned into a completely different period of growth and like learning curve. In my life, um, I didn't actually first consider health sciences as well. I was on the flip side and I was considering going into accounting. My first dream was forensic accounting. I thought that was a brilliant life plan for myself. I was like, I will go into commerce, financial analytics. I shied away from STEM programs originally, partially from my own fear of giving into a certain stereotype surrounding kind of like women of color or people of color who enter into the STEM fields. I didn't want to feel as if I was going into it because it was a preset mold, but I went into it out of, you know what, accept what I'm passionate about. It has nothing to do with the stereotype. I love this field. I love discovery and I love learning about biochemical, physiological, macroscopic levels of science. So I kind of followed my passion despite what other people were considering or had any innate biases about me. And then I came here to Queens and it, the rest is history.
0: I think that's so interesting. The fact that like you both have had such extensive thought processes on how to go about your university journey, but you also both touched on how you feel like you've developed so much, um, and. Uh, at the end of the day, not regretted your decisions to go within each field. So, can you can you expand a little bit more about what that experience was like, especially as people who have uh, been such like ceiling
1: breakers in in your uh, time at Queens? Can I just say how funny it is that Mariah was like, "I'm gonna go into accounting," <laughs> and I was like, "I'm gonna go into something sciency," and we both ended up in opposite, um, opposite degrees. I find that hilarious. And Mariah, when you were talking about, you know, going into um, a science program and hesitating because of the stereotypes associated, that was something I thought about a lot. I was like, you know, if I go into a program where Um, already there's a stereotype associated with like oh all brown people you know are engineers or doctors or whatever Um, and that's a very like privileged stereotype in the first place but uh, I thought like it's harder to stand out it's harder to make a name for yourself in a way it's harder to push boundaries for your community when there's already so many of you and when I think about what Malika you're saying about ceiling breaker I don't know like I don't know if I would classify myself as that, but I will say when you're the first or when you're one of the only in a space and you're someone who's used to taking up space, you just become that innately. Like you don't choose that title. You don't choose those actions. It's just who you are. Um, so for instance, when I think about, you know, my queen's, um, experience and what that's been like, um, I remember like, you know, going to, um, networking events in commerce at least. And every time I asked for, you know, halal food options and they were only vegetarian or vegan, that in itself, in and of itself was a way, quote unquote, of breaking a ceiling because a lot of folks either hadn't thought of it or hadn't thought about it enough to the point where they realized it was a big need, um, for a few students in the community. Um, uh, so it's little things like that that I think really added up for me. At Queens, my first two years, it was really hard to find a sense of belonging. And mind you, the second year was when the pandemic hit. So everything went online. And I had a few um, friends who were just amazing and incredible. And I don't think I would have been able to get through the year without them. But first year was probably the most culture shock of an experience because I'd come from a high school that was really uh culturally diverse and visibly when you looked around you saw how many different countries were represented and so many different backgrounds and you know you grow up and there's things like cultural fashion shows happening and um like art displays that come from different parts of the world and I I really enjoyed that and to me diversity was never something that I even had to think about and I truly think coming to Queens in a way made me appreciate what I had a lot more in my high school community Um, because when I got to Queens I found that there wasn't that same sense of connection to cultural backgrounds and there wasn't really as much conversation about just how homogenous the space looked at times and um, that isn't to say you know there cannot be diversity just because the space doesn't visibly look diverse but it was the lack of conversations around celebrating people's differences that i found for me was a challenging transition so that's a little bit about what my experience is like and overall i think this school has grown so much the people i've met along the way the people have that have been coming into this school as well there's a much bigger emphasis and awareness of celebrating people's differences and it just makes me really excited to see how far or how much further we're going to go in you know the next 5 10 20 years. So Mina, you're speaking a little bit about how
0: your identity innately held such a strong like role in how your experience at Queens went. And I'm I'm realizing that this is a very different experience for a lot of people. Uh, maybe something that people
2: don't often have to think about. Mariah, uh, Maria, what's your take on that? I had kind of an opposite experience but ending up at a similar end point. Um, I came to Queens with a culture shock, but not because of the lack of diversity, but because of how diverse Queens seemed to me. I come from a small town just outside of Kingston, and there was only one high school in my town. And in that high school, I was one of only two Asian identifying students in my class. Um, the high school itself was about 950 students. So I didn't grow up with any kind of diversity that was exemplified in the school. Um, There was no kind of like there was no artwork celebrating different cultures. There were no cultural days. There was no international courses that really looked into different aspects of worldview, world law, world history. Um, So when I came to Queens, I was shocked. I was like, oh, my gosh, there are. People here of color, there are like other Asians here. How am I going to be able to talk to all of these people? They, I've never been able to kind of connect with a community that shares a similar history to me. So I guess me trying to find my own corner of advocacy here was not because of a lack of diversity that made me want to reintegrate it into Queens, but instead my complete urge to hit the ground running and claim as much of it as I could. um, Coming into a new opportunity to be able to connect with such diverse perspectives, I started pulling it in left, right, and center, trying to, to gain a sense of community from feeling like there was a disconnect here, but seeing how much opportunity there was for connection. Because from my perspective, there were so many people sitting here with vast lived experiences and vast cultural depth to them that we could create really impactful, meaningful relationships and experiences and kind of like projects, advocacy work here at Queen's. that was just sitting here waiting to to be ignited, to be sparked. So starting to pull all that in from different corners and meeting all these different people across kind of my own program and other programs and learning about the small pockets across Queen's that have been doing really amazing advocacy and equity work was where I've ended up and how I've kind of come into this this role that i never envisioned myself in i came from the idea that university was just you you graduate high school you go you go to class and then you get your diploma and you walk out again and go into the workforce and nothing beyond that nothing beyond kind of like interacting outside of a classroom or interacting in a space that i had never once experienced before Um, For me, this was an exponential learning curve across the past three years trying to discover kind of who I am and also discover new ways of thinking in comparison to maybe ways that um, had been integrated into me from my past experiences.
0: I think it's really interesting how you both um, use your identity to shape I guess, how you approach queens in, in different ways. Mariah, my question to you is like, do you feel like your identity played a huge role in searching for those advocacy projects and, and
2: actually carrying them through? Um, I would definitely say it is the main progenitor in kind of carrying these projects through and, and seeking them out actively as well. I do identify like I'm Chinese and Thai, but my parents are white. Um, As such, there's a bit of an intersectionality between kind of maybe growing up in a white household, but trying to reconnect with my own cultural background. And as such, being able to come to Queen's and seeing all of these opportunities here to connect with people who share similar experiences, but also vastly different experiences. But we're coming to a similar conclusion of we all need to have a more collaborative shift towards working together as a singular entity rather than these small little pockets with brilliant ideas and phenomenal students and great initiative. Being able to pull those together is something that I've noticed makes an exponential change. It's something that makes it a more tangible and an even more enriched experience here. Mm-hmm. I
0: also wanted to touch on the fact that like you guys have come from such completely different environments, but Mina, you had to kind of shift your entire perspective of how you engage with uh, this new environment more so than the average Queen student. Do you feel like there were any specific challenges that you didn't,
1: you didn't really know how to approach since no one else has kind of gone through it before? Oof. Okay. Great question. So let me think. Um, there's a lot that I can highlight here, but the personal growth that happens when you're in an educational environment, I don't think people fully realize that in our age group, generally as an undergrad student, you're going through so many new experiences, meeting so many new people. You're you're constantly evolving and changing. And um, I mean, even for instance, if you like open up TikTok or Instagram, you always see those like self-care, self-improvement trends. There's always something going around. And to me, when I entered university, I was going through all of the typical challenges of a university student, like I was, you know, low key complaining about the dining hall food. I was thinking about the fact that, um, you know, like residents can be such a fun experience, but also from like a logistical perspective, sometimes it can be so inconvenient as well. I was going to classes and learning to adjust to this new style of learning and teaching. Um, I was getting to know my professors and trying to figure out how to navigate this new system and also trying to make friends and join clubs. So all of the typical experiences that any first-year student would go through. And what I didn't anticipate, though, was having to think extra hard about little things to make myself more palpable to the space. So... I'll give you examples. In commerce in first year during pre-pandemic times, we would have lots of networking events where firms would come to the building and you got to interact with recruiters, you got to interact with current employees and you as, you know, a student, your goal is to go to these network events, le- learn more about that firm and then hopefully, you know, stay in touch with some of these folks that are representing that firm so you can maybe work for them afterwards. And I remember when I went to a few networking events, the first kind of three or four people that I talked to, they I tried to start up conversations. And, you know, most people that know me know me as a very sociable person. I don't hesitate when it comes to starting conversations with strangers on the street even. So when I would start up some conversations, I found that the questions never really seemed to be tailored to what I wanted to talk about. So I would be asked a lot like, oh, what's your favorite place you've traveled to? And at the time, I had only been to like my birth country, Pakistan, and Canada. And I remember thinking, and maybe like the States on a road trip once, but I remember thinking like, oh yeah, I've been to the States and I would see it on their faces, especially if there was a larger group having a conversation with like one recruiter where some other student would say, oh, I've been to Italy or another student would say, oh, like I've been to Tanzania. Um, and, you know, immediately the recruiter or the representative from that firm would latch on like, Oh, Italy. That's so cool. Yeah. I went there once too. Or no, my girlfriend's from Italy. Like there'd always be something to latch onto and carry that conversation with that student. And you could instantly tell that like, you know, when someone's eyes spark up a little bit and you know, most people, if you talk to them and you're like, how was your presentation or how was your interview? Most people can tell the difference between, you know, a decent, like whatever kind of interview and a great interview, because in a great interview or in a great conversation, you can tell that like that person really could see you like they connected with you. They're going to remember you. If you were to message them afterwards through email or something, they would say, yeah, I remember you. You were, you know, Italy girl or whatever. People would remember that. Right. But in my case, I found it was so hard to stand out. Another thing that was an interesting experience for, for me personally was how underestimated I was in this space constantly. So for instance, I remember in uh, a particular group project and I'm comfortable sharing this story because this individual and I have had so many conversations about it and we, we laugh about it now. But I remember when I was in first year, I was in a group project where I was constantly being spoken over by one of the members of the group. And, um, you know, whenever we would see each other around in the halls, keep in mind commerce is a program of like 400 people a year and you get usually very close with your cohort. So I guess it's kind of similar, Mariah, to like HealthSci where you're in a small program and most people know everybody else's business. So in, in, in commerce, you know, we're a small program. We've gone through so many different activities together. We see the same like 80 people in our classes again and again because the classes are so small as well. And I remember whenever I'd, I'd see this person in the hallways, not only would they kind of just ignore me or they'd never initiate conversation, but they would also be talking over me in our group meetings. And often when I bring up an idea, they'd say like, mm, I don't know about that one. So at first I was like, you know, maybe the ideas just aren't that good. Like, that's okay. I get that. And maybe they just don't want to say hi to me. And like, that's okay. Like I didn't want to take it personally, but I would always see this person going out of their way to talk to others. And one time uh, I was in a hallway and I just saw them starting up a conversation with somebody. And I thought like, you made eye contact with me. Why didn't you say hi? Like we're in the same group we're we're in so many classes together. And it was only until I was in a group meeting and by chance the group members pulled up LinkedIn profiles, believe it or not. And they were like, oh my God, Mina, you've won like a scholarship. And they were all so impressed that that one person in the group who'd consistently been pretending I was almost invisible and didn't see any worth to me just based on what they saw visibly in terms of my identities as, you know, a hijab wearing woman, as a brown Muslim woman, they suddenly had a total switch. So next time I saw them in the hallway, they were like, hey, how's it going? And they even initiated asking to, like, do a coffee chat. And I thought how fascinating it is that Even when I, you know, from the classroom to networking events to even club spaces, a lot of times people would assume that, oh, she's not going to be anything impressive or cool or someone that I want to talk to based on what they were used to seeing as this definition of impressive. A lot of people in commerce have this outdated idea that, quote unquote, like the hardos or the ones that are going to be the hardest working or get the furthest in life are those who are conventionally, you know, white or um, male and That's a stereotype that I would see throughout my first year a lot, and it impacted me because I would have to work extra hard to prove myself in these spaces. And believe me when I say you don't want to define yourself by your accomplishments. And I've never been someone that would go around saying to people, I'm this person, I got this. Like I, that was never a part of my life. But somehow, even though I didn't define myself by my accomplishments, The environment I was in was defining me by my accomplishments. Even talking to recruiters, if there was some subtle way that I could sneak in something impressive that I'd done, they'd automatically want to listen more. And it was so hard to find a balance between not letting that consume my identity and at the same time acknowledging that I have to take extra steps to prove myself. Even for instance, let's just throw one other example in just to spice things up, contouring. I don't know if you're familiar with like the makeup you know, style of contouring, but um, I had never done it <laughs> throughout high school or anything. But in first year, I remember going to like networking events and noticing that those who fit into more Western ideals of like beauty standards would automatically get a lot more attention from recruiters. And typically the recruiters, majority of them at these events would also be, you know, folks who are white. I'm not saying that that's innately a bad thing. But when you have the same folks in a room looking to hire people, naturally, they're going to gravitate towards the people that look like them or the ones that, you know, have similar experiences to them because we, we like attracts like it's just how it is. And even Harvard Business Review has this study that they released where um, the only real proven method of improving diversity in organizations is by having more diverse hiring panels So when you have the same people in the same room, you know, trying to recruit eager, fresh faced students from a business school, I found that often that invisibility cloak would be over me again and again. And it was when I started to, you know, make my features look a little bit more aligned with Western ideals of beauty, whether it was the way that I contoured my face, contoured my nose, even I found there was a subtle difference in the way I was perceived And often I would get more conversations, recruiters would start conversations with me. And that difference alone told me that we have a massive problem and we need to bring in, you know, different perspectives and people with different lived experiences into these spaces so that we are not perpetuating this groupthink pipeline problem. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: That was a lot. Thank you so much. And just for um, our audience,
0: contouring essentially is when you use a darker shade to create shadows, natural shadows on your natural, quote unquote, natural um, shadows on your face. Um, And uh, it helps change your bone structure. And I find that a lot of people of color face this because they try to fit a very heteronormative way of looking. And I'm, uh, I'm wondering, Mariah, is this a similar challenge that you face um, in health sci and how different career opportunities, and, and even if it's not necessarily makeup, but have you been perceived differently based on your identity simply because you showed up as a Chinese Thai person?
2: Oh, incredibly. I would argue that in health sci, it's a little bit different in terms of maybe our demographic, um, the health sciences program. It's also small Um, my year is approximately 200 students. So I think it's about half of Mina's cohort, but there is a lot more Asian representation in it. That being said, however, the reason I go by the name Mariah is because it's not associated with being Asian on paper. If you never saw my face, if you never saw my LinkedIn person's initial impression would most likely not be Asian. I've had people when I walk into the room say like, Oh, you're Asian and. First off, that is a terrible way to introduce yourself in an interview, in my opinion. I believe an interview panelist should not be making that statement. Um, but that being said, that definitely took me aback the first time I heard that because it's not something that I had ever considered would be linked to my name. And then thinking back on it, thinking back to kind of like why my parents had changed my first name, like my, my original name is more ethnically Chinese, but changing it into maybe a more westernized name, it allowed me to blend in more. And I think that that was a protective factor for me. Then coming into health sciences, trying to, again, kind of like Mina said, stand out was a difficult component if you didn't share certain archetypes that were expected or were assumed in the respective field. So in health sciences, we don't have we don't have coffee chats, but everyone still likes to kind of know everyone else's business. Um, it's a small <laughs> program; you're bound to know everyone, um, or at least have heard their name, seen their faces somewhere. And a lot of people like to look at you based on kind of like any accomplishments or anything that is quantifiable on a resume. And I found that in terms of what kind of the health sciences students strive for in this case, um, it tends to gear towards medical school. So it tends to gear towards research positions, getting medical school interviews, um, getting in at a young age seems to be kind of like a mile marker for what is considered successful in this program. Um, A lot of people try and get in by third year, which is terrifying because a lot of people don't even legally drink in the states by third Mm -hmm. year so that is a terrifying consideration um it's phenomenal for those people they are incredibly talented individuals uh but being judged based on your h index which is a score used on google scholar to identify a publisher how many times their publications have been um cited in other works and kind of like the the success of their publication using scores like that, using an MCAT score, a CASPER quartile, um, research positions, volunteer positions. Every single student appears to be a copy-paste pool of one another as everyone uses that as their marker for success. It becomes this kind of continuous hamster wheel race of who can fulfill the most broad opportunities in the field that don't relate to academics. A lot of people don't introduce themselves based on maybe like more humanistic values, but instead based on kind of like what you've published. If you're in research by first year, which is terrifying because first year, I didn't even know where my classes were. And then again, feeling as if there was a divide between legacies. So a legacy tends to be a person who comes from a family who has a healthcare background. So children of physicians or children of people who are healthcare professionals who then have an, an inherent advantage and they can kind of carry that forward. I recognize that they have their own um pressures on them as well. There might be pressure from your family to perform to the same level as your relatives. Um, But then there's also advantages, such as gaining access into that field right out of high school or growing up with that environment around you that allows you to have some leg up on other individuals in terms of coming into this program and then, again, being measured based on quantifiable arbitrary factors. All of that plays into when you come in with a certain identity, how people are going to gauge your success right off bat. Um, I came from a small town with kind of like maybe a more westernized name and initial impressions were that I would not be able to match up to the standard because I did not come from maybe a family that was pushing me super hard from a more traditionalist Asian perspective of pushing into a professional program such as like law, engineering, medicine. Um, but then also having the flip side where I'm, I'm not white and I don't have the same appearance advantages. Um, My looks are not Western. And kind of similar to Mina um, in terms of makeup, I used to try and make my eyes look bigger. Um, In high school, that was a huge component was kind of drawing some people I'm not sure if it's shown up on TikTok. Maybe it showed up on mine because again, TikTok's algorithm is so creepy and it can just figure out exactly what you're thinking. It feels like, but how to, um, put white eyeliner on your eyes so that they look bigger to kind of move away from the traditional, more kind of almond shape of uh, Asian eye in order to try and fit into those Western views of what an attractive candidate for speaking to or appearing professional might look like. Mm-hmm.
0: I really value how you both brought up such distinct challenges that you have faced in two very reputable programs at Queens. And I think, I think another point is that Queens has done a lot or is working towards a goal of being truly diverse and uh, truly accommodating to a lot of different people. And I'm wondering, did you feel supported as diverse individuals going through these very distinct
1: challenges? And if so, by which mechanisms? I think it's a it's a yes and no. I'm going to take that answer and I'll elaborate. Um, So from an interpersonal level, I found there was the most amount of variance. So, for instance, um, some professors that I spoke to about an experience in like a classroom, let's say um, they would totally get it. They would sympathize. But I found often that the support wouldn't or couldn't go further from there like they would say it's so like it sucks that that happened i'm so sorry they'd you know have like a box of tissues ready if it was like an emotional moment or something um but there really wasn't uh, a what's the next step um to escalate the issue or to hold another individual in the program accountable so i found that that was lacking but from an emotional support perspective i found like so many for instance peers and professors would follow up and be like hey how are you doing just checking in like are things better now there was a lot of that um so in some ways i'm so grateful because you can tell that once people understand your problem they they will do their best to support you or at least to check in on you even if they don't know how to help but to me i was a little disappointed because i found that in some positions that are paid positions within the school, where the job of the role is to look after, you know, the well-being and safety and all of that and a success of all students, um, I found there was a lack of effort to try and understand students' experiences particularly with students who come from underrepresented backgrounds. So commerce, when I entered in the in my first year, was that cohort was the visibly most diverse cohort you could see in the program. And so I was acknowledging that, like, okay, it's amazing. They're trying to increase their diversity. You know, we have so many international students. But the level of um, inclusion was not really keeping pace with it at the time. And believe me, like, I know... I know I've worked in so many diversity, equity, inclusion roles. I know how, you know, slow these changes can be and it takes time to see their effects manifest. So I sympathize a lot with, you know, how challenging these types of um, this type of progress is but i found that for instance even when i would escalate like a a challenge to let's say like a counselor and i'd say i am feeling stressed not because of like the academics or not because of like residents or not because of xyz i'm feeling stressed because of this specific instance of a barrier in a classroom or for instance um a certain interpersonal interaction i remember one time i was telling um uh someone who works in at Queens that I had a student come up to me and say, like, how's the war in Syria? Because they assumed I was Syrian. And, you know, Mariah, if we're talking about terrible intros, I thought that was just the worst intro possible. Like, why would you come up and just say that making an assumption that like, A, I'm Syrian where you didn't even ask, like, you you just made the assumption. B, making the assumption that Syria is fully defined by its war alone that's also problematic but there was just so many little moments like that that kept piling on so it was not never just like one incident but I was explaining to this person how that was like the final like that was the final moment that made me go oh I need to go talk to somebody about this and to this person the only follow-up that they had to offer was like have you tried meditating and I thought like I have told you a list of these small little experiences, these microaggressions that I have been seeing for months now. And this is all in first year alone. So like, keep in mind, you know, you're going through that transition period. You're just you're just trying to be a student. You're just trying to make friends. And on top of that, you're dealing with these microaggressions. Like I couldn't catch a break. These types of things I found the support for me really came when someone else would be like, hey, I would like this too. And those moments were often few because- I found when I would have conversations one-on-one with other students or other faculty members or, you know, people at Queen's who shared my lived experiences, they would agree and they'd say, like, I get where you're coming from. It's so frustrating. We'd have a lot of those moments of ranting to one another just to, like, blow off some of that steam around these microaggressions. But when it came to standing up in a room full of people, particularly people who don't share your lived experiences – a lot of folks didn't feel comfortable. And I, I respect their choice to not speak up because I understand how hard it is. And I understand the repercussions. I understand, for instance, people um, are trying to get onto certain clubs or get access to certain opportunities. Not everyone has scholarships to support their education. Their parents are paying out of pocket or they themselves are working multiple jobs. And, you know, even as someone who already acknowledges that I come from an underserved community relative to Queens. Like I'm not underserved everywhere in this country, for instance. I understand that not everybody is going to want to put that label on their back. Not everybody wants that target on their back. So particularly in my case, the support that was just really helpful was when other people chimed in and were like, yeah, I see where she's coming from. And the biggest moments of allyship that came for me were actually when Co chairs or like senior students in my program would take the time to say, Hey, I noticed you made this comment, and I just want to see if there's anything else I can do for you. I can think of, for instance, 10 upper years that I still wish so well on them. Like, I think I hope they're doing amazing. Like, I try to check in on them because they made such a massive difference for me. 10 sounds like such a small number. But when just a few people go all in and take the time to support you and call in things that you also know are an issue in the program, that makes such a big difference. And to me, that support was huge. I wish there was more of that in my first year with paid positions at Queen's. But I think, you know, I want to have the grace and the forgiveness to recognize not everyone's going to have those insights. And now there's a lot more conversation around it. And it's because of the level of advocacy work that students, alumni, faculty, and staff have put in to create those changes.
0: And Mariah, before we hear from you, so just for some context, I'm a second year in commerce as well. And I'm wondering, Mina, from from your experiences, have you seen a change in the supports that students are offered, but also
1: your own inclusion within the commerce program. Yeah, for sure. And part of it is because once you're, um, you know, by the time you get to fourth year, you're the one that's helping to create the culture as opposed to trying to, you know, fit into the culture or understand the culture. Um, But I'll give you some specific examples. I remember when I was in first year, uh, I'd heard of, I hadn't even heard of a resource called the Queens U Yellow House, um, because it was only known in very niche, small pockets, Of um, my program um, and just the university, like the people who cared about equity, the people who cared about inclusion work, they knew about the yellow house. But unless you were involved in that space, you didn't really hear about it. So, I mean, it was it wasn't that it was being gatekept. It was just how unintentionally these types of echo chambers form. And yet when I got to third year, that was my first time hearing about the Queen's U Yellow House. And I realized it's a whole resource available for BIPOC students or, you know, queer and trans students who um, might need a space just for them. So I thought that was so fascinating that even hearing about certain resources or, for instance, there's a peer support center. And in commerce, like I had not heard about the peer support center or even if I had. And you know what, at some point, probably during orientation or some type of like reminder about well-being during exam season, I probably had heard of it, but I think it never stood out to me because the description would sound like just any other, you know, support call description. But over the years, I've noticed that the Peer Support Center has made specific mentions about like, you know, you can come and discuss this topic with us if you're struggling with um, inclusion barriers. And that's what made me remember it. I was like, oh. That's interesting. I didn't see that before for another resource here. So like even just the way we talk about the resources, there's a lot more courage and bravery. I can see in the language acknowledging that this is a resource specifically available in case you're a student who is underserved on this campus from an equity lens. You can come and talk to us. So that's just one small example of how I've seen the support improve over time. You both touched on how equity
0: is a lifelong process or the fact that it's a law of work. I think that we're in a shift where a lot of us equity deserving groups are not ready to wait till our fourth year to to feel included and feel seen. And at the end of the day, what do you think is needed to create that culture shift so that people incoming Feel included right from the get go.
2: Yeah. Um, that's an awesome question. I would say like it's not reinventing the wheel. Equity work is not regenerating or inventing something and then running with it. We have to be able to see kind of like everything that intergenerationally has built up, how we can use those lessons and bring them forward. I'm gonna tap into a completely different sphere and say that one of the Biggest ways we can create a culture shift is for the younger generations who are coming into Queens is introducing them to it as they come into Queens rather than as Mina and myself had discovering it per se by second year or end of first year entering third year even fourth year like by the time you have been fighting so hard to establish your own identity and then come along to these resources rather I believe it would be even more effective if you helped shape your own identity alongside these resources being a student is not just about trying to fit into your classroom and make it through your homework assignments it's also about shaping your identity and discovering kind of what you are passionate about and being able to find the groups right away that are passionate about similar items of action I love this
1: question too, because the problems that affect us continue to affect us until there's going to be some level of change. So when it comes to driving some type of cultural change, there is only so much that I can do with my story and my experiences, because the people that I am around most likely have already heard of these experiences or they have some level of awareness of them just by being in proximity to me. But you have people that I will never be able to reach. For instance, your grandmother, I don't know under what circumstances I would interact with her unless you introduced us, but you, you interact with your grandmother, you have a relationship with her. She has a reason to care about your opinions and your worldviews. So it's important for me that if you're trying to be an ally and trying to be, you know, helping to improve inclusion on whether it be a campus, whether it be in your family, whether it be in a corporate workspace or wherever else it's important that you tap into the spheres of influence you have and never underestimate any of them the coworker that only cares about your opinions is going to listen to you if you tell them like hey man we can't be doing that it's it's so important that you tap into those personal spheres of influence the second that you think you have to be the person out on the streets leading some type of grand protest is the second that i'm gonna say you have to stop right there what is
0: something that if if there are incoming Queen students listening to this right now, what
1: would what would you tell them? I'd say for any incoming students, first of all, like make sure you're having grace and compassion for yourself. It's a massive learning curve, even just to physically like be on a new campus space. So keep in mind that you do not have to get everything right the first time around. That's general advice to anyone that I would give coming into university. When it comes to any um students who might be from an underserved background i highly encourage you to find at least one or two spaces whether it's through a club whether it's through you know the friends that you make where you feel you don't have to code switch or to perform or to be any other way like you can just be and your identity does not define you it's something that you know, is a part of who you are, but at the end of the day, you can just be and there's no expectations on you. This campus is so intimate and so beautiful. And when you find
2: those pockets of peace for yourself here, you will feel so at home. To maybe non, not as equity deserving groups, I would say recognizing positionality and recognizing privilege is a long process as well. Coming to terms with your own privilege And not feeling guilty about it is also something that some people struggle with. And I feel like myself coming from a place where I realized I am from a heavily privileged position financially and seeing that perspective and understanding that I can't just change it like a flip of a switch, but I can use it as an effective tool is something that might be frustrating or you might feel self-guilt as a person thinking like, why do I have this privilege? like, can't I just hand it off to someone like a backpack? Can I just take it off? And unfortunately, you can't. It's like that invisible backpack of privilege, right? But being able to recognize that you have that advantage and, okay, how can I use this to better everyone around me? To equity-deserving groups, I would say that being okay with not sharing your voice right away and not feeling guilty And when it is your time or when you feel comfortable speaking, do so and speak loud, speak clear, and honestly sing it from the top of software library if you want. Thank you, Mariah and Mina,
0: for sitting um, down and having this inspiring and educating chat with me. I feel like I'm always learning, talking to you guys, and I learned so much through our conversation. Thank you guys so much. Thank you for having us. It's been an
2: honor and a privilege
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the shift podcast for a list of all the resources mentioned in this episode, please visit the shift podcast website at queensu.ca slash campus wellness project slash shift dash podcast. If you'd like to get involved in the shift podcast or have questions or comments in general, feel free to email us at queensshiftproject at queensu.ca.